Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Well, we got to get down to business. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the Chicago Reader and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Friday, November 20th, 2020. Yeah, that's the date. So if you're listening to this 10 years from now and you want to know what's going on in the world, Benny J, back on Friday, November 20th, I'll tell you what was going on in the world. Utter subversion of democracy. That's what was going under uh, going on in the world. And I'll read you that front page headline from the New York Times, if you don't believe me. Trump targeting Michigan employee to subvert vote. Here's a u- unique idea on the part of Donald Trump. If we keep uh, any state from counting black people who vote, we'll win the election. Oh, next up for Trump, bring back slavery. Anyway. That was the front page news. No collusion. No collusion, right? Yeah, not much. All right. Uh, As I do with every distinguished guest, I always ask my distinguished guests on bonus interviews to introduce themselves. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Benny J, I couldn't be happier to be here. Karen Hawkins, I am now, I got to say, I keep saying this wrong. I am co-publisher and co-editor-in-chief of the Chicago Reader. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. The great Karen Hawkins. And among her many duties as, God, this is a tongue twister, co-publisher and co-editor-in-chief is she gets to edit my copy. And so I'll now replicate the process of editing Ben Jarofsky's copy. Here we go. There you go. That's how you did. <laughs> Put in the old shredder. No, just kidding, Karen Hawkins. Uh, first of all, congratulations, Karen. Um, best of luck. We're all in this together. You and me, we're tied to each other. I tell you what. I wouldn't want to be on this sinking ship with anybody else but you guys. <laughs> okay, good to know. And I do know how to swim. And uh, so if all else fails, you know, do you know how to swim? Are you a swimmer? I like to think that I could swim to survive. I don't know that you call it a flail to survive. Uh, okay. Winning, but I'll sure. help you out. I'll go right next to you the whole way. Uh, we're in it together. Karen Hawkins, myself, Tracy Bame, and uh, the folks at the reader readers been around a long, long time. Uh, we've been hit hard by the pandemic. We talk about this all the time. We'll t- be talking about this with uh, Karen, future journalism, the future podcasting, how the two are intertwined. But Karen, before we do that, why don't you take the opportunity just to introduce yourself to listeners? You were on the show over a year ago. Many of them probably forgot. So how did you uh, find your way to this position of your life where you're co-publisher of The Reader? I'm still asking myself that every day, Ben. Uh, so... The long story short, I am from Chicago. I grew up on the South Side and South Suburbs. I went to high school in the South Suburbs. Don't ask me where I went. It was home at Flossmore. Don't judge me. Um, 
nothing wrong with that. Well, you know, you know how Chicagoans are like, oh, you grew up on the South Side, where'd you go to high school? Okay, home of Flossmore, fine. Um, always knew I wanted to be a journalist, went to U of I for journalism, went to grad school at Northwestern, still paying for it. Um, and in between, I, I should back up, but long story short, I worked with Tracy Bame at Windy City Times in 2000 and was there a year, worked as a reporter, left to go do other things. Obviously, Tracy and I have stayed in touch and she approached me two and a half years ago now and said, how do you like what you're doing? And, you know, I liked what I was doing. I was running my own show, but um, I can't say no to Tracy. She knows that. It's a sickness I have. She asked me to do things and I just always say yes. Um, and so came to the reader in October of 2018 as the paper's first ever digital managing editor mm-hmm. and was hired alongside Sujay Kumar, who is the managing editor for Prince. He and I kind of worked side by side for about five months. And then the then editor-in-chief left and Sujay and I sweet-talked Tracy into letting us try out this co-leadership model for co-editor-in-chief. Like, don't do a national search. Don't traumatize the staff with more people. We've been here. Let's just try it out and see how it goes. Tracy saw that she could save some money. Uh, Sujay and I were were, uh, co-editor-in-chief together from March of last year to now, um, and I became co-publisher like a week or so ago, Uh, and it's been a wild ride. These last two years have been a wild ride, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. I grew up reading The Reader, and I just love it. Yeah, it has been a wild ride, Uh, and I could just tell you this this is a long-time reader employee, uh, reader writer. So many changes and twists and turns on this road uh, since, uh, what was it, 2007, I want to say, when the uh, the original owners of the reader convened a meeting uh, at the old office on Grand so many offices ago and uh, said that they were selling to an outfit called Creative Loafing. Uh, and I don't want to burden our listeners with the, the horrid tale that unfolded, but uh, bankruptcies uh, followed, uh, being sold to a hedge fund or, or turned over to a hedge fund followed. And here we are. Uh, And it's almost much more it's much more of a collaborative effort, I must say, um, with the reader right now than it's ever been. At least definitely it's ever been in the last it's been in the last 15 years. You said something to me, uh, Karen, before um, we went on the air that I didn't realize. And it just struck me about my beloved reader, um, how we're, we're like in the total universe how small we are uh, and potentially fragile. Uh, and I don't know if you're going to share this with our listeners, but since I'm already op- opening it up, I think you're, you're going to one way or the other. You said the budget for the annual budget for the reader was, if I got this right, $1.2 million. Did I, is, is that correct? Did I remember that correctly? No, I cut it in half. Two point four. million. You cut it in half. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm trying to just, I don't know if Tracy's going to kill me for saying that number, but it's, let's just say less than, I, we're going to be a nonprofit. That's all going to be public. Less For less than $2.5 million a year, you too can put out an alternative newspaper in Chicago. That is correct. And yeah, I, I talk about that number because, you know, I used to work in digital publishing and work around a lot of tech bros and $2.5 million is a rounding error. 
That's, yeah. that's how much they get to make their app that farts start up, you know, yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. And, and what struck me, what got our conversation going was I was telling you about a story I just read in the business section of the New York Times where the ringer, uh, podcasting operation uh, put together by Bill Simmons, who uh, used to be a sports writer. Uh, I believe uh, Spotify bought it for $200 million, $200 million. So Karen, talk about how you survive in a, uh, in an industry you're dedicated to writing articles, exposing injustices uh, and promoting people who are really getting the raw end of the deal. And you have to struggle. Uh, I mean, if I had $2 million, I'd be happy, but don't be wrong, but you have to pay people, pay health insurance, uh, you know, pay all your costs, utilities, what have you. Yeah. Two, two million. Oh boy. Bill Simmons, 200 million. Please explain the world to me, Karen, so I can understand this. I wish I could explain it to you, Ben. If I knew I would tell you, and I, I you see it all the time. You know, I, I still get the tech emails, um, I'm not going to say the name of there's an outfit in Chicago that covers technology and I'm constantly watching the oven guy get $40 million or watching all these companies get acquired. And, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I think it goes down to what we value. And for way too long, we've been given journalism away for free. I was talking to a friend today, like what other industry gives their product away for free? other than tech where you are the product, what other industry is just like, we're going to spend all of this time and money and resources and acquire all these intelligent, talented people to produce this beautiful thing. And then we're just going to give it to you. Here you go. Hmm. Um, yeah. I, journalism has a problem. We, we as a culture just don't value it because we've gotten it for free for too long. Yeah. And it's particularly the case with the reader. The reader model is a free newspaper. That's what the reader is all about going back to the seventies and through the eighties and the nineties. But of course it was a different advertising climate. Uh, we had money pouring in from advertisers in a way we don't have it now. So looking forward now that you're a uh, uh, co publisher, you have to worry about these things. Uh, what's, what's the future? Uh, for the reader in particular, but just uh, journalism in general. Plastics. <laughs> the is plastics. Sorry. Okay. I'm waiting for yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, You know, the, re the, the future is the, the same sermon I've heard Tracy give a million times about diversification. We can't, obviously, we can't rely just on advertising and since she got here two years ago alongside, you know, we started around the same time, she has, she immediately started diversifying. So we were advertising and merch and events and fundraising from donors and wild schemes, telethons. Um, and I think we will continue to do that. And now that we're going to be a nonprofit that opens up a whole other world of, you know, there are some foundations, bless them, who do give to for-profit entities, but a lot of them only give to nonprofits. So that opens up a new world for us. And we, I cannot thank our readers enough for being so supportive and buying reader merch and becoming members and becoming subscribers and buying book club memberships and, it is what keeps me going every day. And, you know, I talk about the larger culture of not supporting 
journalism, but that is not true of the people of Chicago. I feel like the people of Chicago really do value their journalism and value local independent community and ethnic media and really support it. And I, I couldn't say thank you enough for that. I had a, a moment of jaded cynicism in my conversation with you before uh, we went on the air, which I think overcomes me from time to time, Karen. I really try to guard against it, uh, but sometimes it just becomes uh, overwhelming. And I made a wise crack uh, about how uh, you're never going to make a lot of money uh, standing up uh, for poor black people. I think I made that wisecrack. Uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And you could just take black out of there and just standing up for poor people, uh, standing up against injustice, uh, et cetera, and so forth. Um, yeah. Do you share my cynicism there? Uh, do you think I'm being unfair? Uh, can you make a living doing this? What's your thoughts? Um, my gut reaction as someone who grew up as a poor black person is, uh, yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely, you're spot on. Not really the most lucrative choice you could make. I don't know how you feel about apps that fart, but <laughs> you might want to consider a pandemic pivot into that. Yeah. Or, uh, my advice, I always give advice to, um, uh, young black people coming out of uh, journalism school. Hey, just sell out. <laughs> just become a Republican. You get paid really well. They can use you. Okay, you know. I, you know, I hate to say it, but I did it. I mean, I left journalism for a while. I worked for Tracy twenty years ago. Left journalism, went into corporate, went into consulting, and it should say a lot to you that I am back at a <laughs> much smaller salary than I was making. Ugh, you know. Yeah, but when you were doing that, I mean, I don't know exactly what you were doing. They didn't make you, or maybe I shouldn't put it this way. I should ask you, did they make you betray things that you believed in your heart of hearts? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I was a consultant. One of the jobs I had, I was a management consultant, and I got sent out to clients, and I went into consulting thinking very naively, there are certain industries that I just won't work in. That I, I somehow am going to have the agency as a consultant, the, you know, an entry level consultant at that point to say like, no, no, I will never work in oil and natural gas. Who was my second client? An oil and natural gas company. Yeah, I, I was definitely doing things that I was holding my nose to do, but it was supporting my, my side hustle of journalism and it was eye-opening. I mean, I learned things working inside that company that I would never, ever have learned as a reporter. So there's that. There was some benefit to it. All right. Well, one of the things that uh, the reader uh, will be doing more of is podcasting. And uh, we talked about this briefly on the show about a week ago when we announced, I announced, I don't know why I'm saying we. I announced uh, that uh, we were parting ways with my beloved Bright One, the Chicago Sun-Times. Uh, that was our initial part, uh, partner in this endeavor. Uh, and uh, that the Ben Jarofsky Show would be solely um, promoted and sponsored by The Reader, affiliated with The Reader. And that uh, will take place. I think that official parting of the ways takes place at the end of the month of November. Uh, and so the reader is going to expand its podcasting empire. And when I say that, I'm smiling because it's hard to have an empire. <laughs> There's only one show, but it will eventually be more shows. Uh, you know, a thing or two about podcasting. We'll get into your individual podcast in a bit, Karen, but uh, what's your hope 
uh, for where the reader can go with podcasting. Well, so glad you asked. And I do want to stop and say thank you so much to the Sun-Times for partnering with us, for you and for Dennis and giving you guys a home. You had a podcast studio we were all very impressed by. Um, thank you to the to the Sun-Times for making that happen. I, I don't know what we would have done these last couple of years, so we appreciate it. Um, goals for the Reader Podcast Network, you know, Tracy can speak more to this. She has a lot of big dreams about it. I, For me, I really want us to see... I really want to see more of the amazing, talented, hilarious, smart, all of the things, writers for the reader on a different platform. A lot of them are already doing platform or doing podcast episodes for other folks. Of course, you have Maya on, you've had Mike Sula on, you've had Lior and Philip on. I really want to see more folks who work for the reader experimenting and using podcasting as a platform. So that's one of the dreams that I have. I, I do think that Obviously, this is not this is not a premonition on my part. Obviously, podcasting is exploding. It's more accessible to more people. And I do think it gives the reader a different voice. We've always been a really voicey outlet and we've always had a very distinctive voice in Chicago. And I think this is another like super literal way to make that happen. How do you view working uh, a podcast with the traditional journalism uh, that uh, the readers always practice? I mean, I think your show, frankly, is an amazing example of what you can do when you blend traditional journalism and reporting and analysis with this platform. Mm -hmm. That, you know, it's a different way of educating people and informing people. And I think one of the things I, I'm not just blowing smoke because you're my, I'm your editor, Ben, but one of the things I really appreciate about what you're doing is that you're not just a talking head. You're not just spinning the news cycle for the sake of spinning the news cycle. You're actually furthering conversations. You're having conversations on your show that aren't being had in other places or being held, you know, in back rooms and you're exposing them. And I feel like it's just another way for people to understand what's going on around them. And you'd like to expand that with other uh, reader writers as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what about yourself? You know, a thing or two about podcasts. You have two podcasts that you do. Uh, let's take them one by one. Uh, of course, I'm not okay. Talk about a course. I'm not okay. Of course. I'm not okay. I'm laughing because I mean, these podcasts are so low budget, but of course I'm not okay is with my uh, dear friend, Katie Morell. She and I, decided to do a podcast really to record the conversations we have. We get really, we jump right into the deep end in our conversations about mental health and creativity and what's going on with us in quarantine. And so that is what the podcast is about. It's, it's Katie and I talking about a lot about feelings and we have guests on um, really wide ranging. Our, so two of our most popular episodes, we're in season two right now. Two of our most popular episodes, one, we had a woman on named Dr. Tanya Israel, who wrote a book about how to have conversations across the political divide. Um, she's a psychologist. She's a researcher. She had really beautiful things to say about how to have really hard political conversations with people. Um, second most popular episode, The Batlight Ladies, um, United Steelworkers folks who uh, they shine. Uh, they were going all over the country shining um, Biden-Harris 2020 yeah. on different landmarks, uh, including Trump Tower in Chicago. And we had two of them on. And what a riot 
they were. Oh, my God. Oh, I got to get those two on. Actually, that first lady sounds really good. Tanya Israel. Oh, she's great. She's so zen and so smart and makes it it makes she makes it sound doable. You know, you think about these super fraught conversations and she just walks you through it like, here's how to do it. You're going to be fine. Well, it's funny, funny because earlier today uh, I was having a conversation with Ramana Hussein. She's uh, every Friday she comes on the show. We were talking about this essayist, uh, Wahad Ali. He writes for the New York Times. He just wrote this essay where he he's saying his experiment with listening to Trump supporters is over. You can't talk to Trump supporters. He's through because he had been one of these uh, Dems who've been preaching after 2016. It's really important for Democrats to listen to Trump supporters. So we can learn from them mm-hmm. uh, and then maybe. Uh, you know, uh, change our approach so that more of them would vote for us. It totally failed. It flopped. Trump got even more votes out of MAGA America this time around than last time around. Uh, but uh, Tiny Israel still believes that you can talk from one group, can talk to the other. Yeah. And not even necessarily. I, I feel like she views it more on a personal. It's more personal. Like she's using political divide, but it's not... I don't think she's advising people necessarily to necessarily to have political conversations. It's more about personal connection because I mean, exactly. Like I feel like it's, it would, it's to me, it feels like a kid. I mean, this is very dramatic for me, but I feel like it's akin to saying like after the civil war was over, like, let's just go talk to these Confederate <laughs> guys and you know, just try to understand their perspective. No, it's not happening. So <laughs> Yeah, that's how it feels to me right now. Uh, of course, I'm not okay. The title itself reminds me of something I heard a lot of over the summer, uh, where people, uh, after the George Floyd murder, yeah. would be black people. Okay, stop asking me if I'm okay. Um, is that where the title came from? Absolutely. Or- that's absolutely where it came from. In fact, I, I edited a group of essays for the reader, and... Um, it was kind of based on a, the, my introduction for it quoted a text I got from a black friend of mine who was just like, I'm tired of everybody asking me if I'm okay. Of course I'm not okay. And that's, that was kind of how the, the podcast title came. That's absolutely right. Uh, yeah. I heard a lot of that. Of course I'm, I never literally said, of course I'm not okay, but stop asking me, am I okay? Yeah. Um, all right. And the, uh, the other uh, podcast, which I think has a tremendous potential, as I told you, uh, to, to, to be a huge hit, and I'm not being a wise ass when I say it. Uh, when you hear the title, ladies and gentlemen, you understand why. Um, a feminist erotica. All right, Karen Hawkins, tell uh, the people about feminist erotica. So, feminist erotica is co-hosted by me and two writers of Rebellious Magazine, Princess McDowell and Jara Brown, and we are interviewing authors and editors in the feminist erotica space. And we have episodes, every other episode-ish, they're called Quickies, and they are readings of erotica by a voiceover artist. Yeah. What a great title, Quickies. Um, I know. I, I, well, first of all, anything with erotica in it has tremendous potential, in my humble opinion, uh, in this country. And it's a weird country we live in, uh, Karen. And I'll just share this thought with you. It's weird at many levels. Sure. Uh, and I'll go back in time with erotica. Usually I do this for reefer, but I'm going to do it for erotica now. I remember, I'm older than you, so I remember when Clarence Thomas came before the Senate Judiciary Committee for his confirmation to become 
Supreme Court justice. This is 1991. And it leaked. I I don't know where you were in your life in 1991. But anyway, in 1991, uh, it emerged that um, uh, he loved pornography. I'm not even going to call it erotica. I'm just going to call it pornography. Uh, And that he used to um, uh, watch it, make jokes about it. Uh, Later on, a a book about the confirmation hearing went into greater detail. And one um, of the films that he uh, made uh, wisecracks about was a, a movie called Long Dong Silver. Okay. Uh, right. Okay. And, all right. And so the Republicans, they had a feign outrage because they had to defend the integrity of Clarence Thomas. And I remember Orrin Hatch, the senator from uh, Utah, saying, How dare you! How dare you accuse this good man of watching movies like Long Dong Silver? I'm like, are you kidding me? This is the one of the biggest industries in America. Oh, man. You know what I'm saying? You're acting like you don't watch it. You know what I'm saying? I just, the hypocrisy of America. Go, Karen. I could say a lot about that. It is a multi-billion dollar industry, obviously. And the other thing I will tell you, I, I did a story when I was an AP reporter that my colleagues all called the stripper story. It was about whether or not the adult entertainment industry is recession proof. And one of the things that I learned during that is that cyber secu- the cybersecurity leading industry in the world is adult entertainment. That the federal government is looking to them for how to protect against hackers. Like they have locked things. They are constantly iterating and innovating around how to lock down their content. So there's, there's, I mean, they're making contributions to the world (laughs) other than what they're doing, but yeah, no, it's, it's massive. It it is really, it is a very strange thing how puritanical we become about these things when really we use sex to sell everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. We had, um, I'll just tell you quickly, we had a book club last night. So Feminist Erotica, the podcast, also has a book club. And we read for this month an uh, anthology called Hustling Verse, and it's poetry from sex workers. And we had a book club discussion, and then we talked to two of the contributors. And it really, it was just, it was mind-blowing conversation. And I feel like I learned a ton from reading that anthology. And it's more than 50 sex workers, past and present, who submitted these poems and it's just really powerful. And I feel like it's such a good example of what happens when you let people tell their own stories. Yeah. I, uh, I would like to check that one out, but uh, uh, any going back to my uh, initial point, uh, feminist erotica, uh, again, erotica in it uh, will certainly uh, bring viewers. uh, And um, so I was hoping that would be one of the podcasts uh, you would bring over to the reader to sort of help us. But no, Karen's no fools. I'm holding on to that one. <laughs> I, mean, I don't. We'll have to see how it fits into the whole portfolio of the Reader Podcast Network. But yeah. Well, I welcome it to the Reader Network. Uh, I would love to be part of a network uh, with your podcast. Either one of them sounds uh, awesome. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you jo- if choose not to go there, uh, that is uh, your decision, the one that you, of course. Uh, but I do believe a feminist erotica has tremendous potential. 
um, to reach uh, you know a live a wide audience. Uh, all right, now I want to ask you about something that I didn't tell you I was going to ask you about. It's based on a conversation uh, that we had uh, about two weeks ago, and I, you know, you edit my co- uh, my column. I just wrote about City So Real. It's really on my mind some of the images in that movie and one of the images that's really on my mind is the uh, salon scene uh, I think it was Christy Hefner's uh, penthouse uh, on the Gold Coast where really um, influential uh, well-to-do people are sitting around a table and talking about the problems in the city and I got a really strong sense of that at the alienation of this particular community um, from the rest of the Chicago yeah. and that leads me to this, Karen. You live downtown, general downtown area, and you witnessed um, everything that went down this summer. Uh, why don't you just talk a little bit about, share with folks what you were telling me about just sort of the images, the things you saw, and the reaction that you had to it, and you know your struggle to figure things out yourself. Yeah, I do live downtown. I saw a lot of the things that happened. I didn't see everything, but I saw a lot. And I have really struggled with how cavalier people have been about property damage downtown. Mm-hmm. And I'm a black woman. I grew up on the South Side. I also agreed that we should care more about people than we do about Louis Vuitton bags. Obviously, like that goes unspoken, like the fact that we only talk about police brutality when people protest is the reason people protest. Let's be clear about that. And that these the attention on property damage absolutely dilutes the message that please stop killing black people for no reason. Okay, and state sanctioned violence and all of the things. But what I was struck by, again, is this idea that like, oh, it doesn't matter if some windows get broken. And I just want to tell you, standing on my balcony on the 22nd floor in tears, wondering if the windows, knowing that the only thing between me and the people on the street setting things on fire was a single security guard and some plate glass windows. And this was the first set of protests though, that this was the first set of protests where things, where the cop car got set on fire, windows got broken and so nothing was boarded up and I, I really was so terrified and more afraid than I've ever been. And then to go on social media the next day and see people be so, mm, why do people care about that? It really, it really has been difficult for me to describe to people what it's like to not feel safe in my home. And I know there are a lot of people all over Chicago who don't feel safe in their homes, but I I just want to tell people the next time you look at downtown and think, oh, those people are just being extra, like just know like actual real people do live here. And it's not the Christy Hefners of the world. Christy Hefner doesn't live in my building. Like there are probably not a ton of working class people here, but there are a lot of students in my building. There are a lot of international students in this building. They're real people who live here and we have as much of a right to be safe as everyone else. And if you wouldn't want somebody throwing a fire extinguisher through the front window of the store in your basement, then I feel like you shouldn't want that for me either. Well, I'm really glad you're saying that because there's going back to what we were talking about, uh, the disconnect between like Trump America, uh, and, uh, 
sane America. Oh, God, that's a judgment right there in itself. I apologize to all of Trump America for that. Uh, but the disconnect that I, uh, we were describing there, there's also that disconnect within Chicago. I talk about it a lot on this show, the disconnect between like lefty Chicago, centrist Chicago, uh, and it just the notion that somehow or other, if you live downtown, and your property gets damaged, it's not as significant what is if your property is damaged and you live in a neighborhood, you know, I and and vice versa, like the notion that somehow if property gets damaged downtown, that's more significant, you know, than property getting damaged. Just this inability to talk to people in different segments of the world, this hostility they have, uh, Karen, it's so embedded in in what you just said yeah and the way that the city treats the neighborhoods i mean i feel like that that feeling that hostility that tension is baked into chicago is baked into how we govern it's baked into how resources are deployed i think you know a little bit of something about tiffs (laughs) it's you know it's um it's it's so it's so baked into how we do things and that we're constantly breathing it, that we don't, we aren't aware of it until something like this summer happens. Uh, Maya wrote uh, an excellent stories in the readers. We talked about it with Maya at length a couple days ago about raising the bridges as a security precaution. What, what's your general attitude about the way the city would be raising bridges to quote unquote, protect uh, the downtown? I still don't understand it. I really am not, I, I, I'm not only don't understand it. What happened the first night they did it was so disgusting that they trapped all these folks. So you raise the bridges, you stop the CTA from running, and then you just trap people in downtown. And then when Chicago Freedom School opens the doors to offer people a place to be and food and water, you send the cops after them. I just, yeah, the usage of, of city infrastructure to, to quiet dissent and to um, punish protests is really, is something I just, I, I still don't, I can't wrap my head around. And I feel like people in other cities can't believe it when we try to describe it. Well, I urge everybody to check out City Surreal, the final episode. I don't know if you've seen it yet, the epilogue. Have you seen the epilogue yet of City Surreal? I haven't, it's on my list. I know. Well, it uh, the first four parts of the the movie uh, deal with the mayoral election of 2019, but the epilogue is about this summer, wow. and there's a lot of footage about downtown protests, police beating up protesters, uh, people uh, looting. There's looting footage. It's everything we lived through this summer, Karen. And, you know, I, I've been locked away in my attic for the <laughs> this pandemic. I really ever go out. Uh, and so just seeing it, it's like we've been exposed to such madness for so long now. I mean, you could say we've been exposed to madness for the whole Trump administration, Karen, but definitely since the pandemic, yeah. It's like we've been exposed to this madness. And then so this summer just erupted, you know, and um, I don't know where we're going with all this. I don't know if we're going to have another eruption or maybe if Joe Biden comes in, you know, we'll be, we're settled, and, 
United. But I urge you to watch it because it'll bring back some memories. That's for sure. And maybe help us uh, figure a way out. All right, Karen Hawkins, uh, it's a blast talking to you and it's a blast working for you. Uh, she's my editor, ladies and gentlemen. Every Monday, she reads my stories, edits them, makes subtle changes that make me look really smart. And no one knows that it was Karen Hawkins who did that. It is a joy to work with you. I really appreciate you so much. All right. Thank you very much. That's the great Karen Hawkins. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.